Hey there, this is Pastor Jason from the Christian Life Church, and we are pleased to bring you the recorded sessions from our recent Heritage 2020 conference with Tim Barton of Wall Builders. in regards to the idea of getting people to come because when you invite sometimes when you invite like even Christians their response is well the Bible's not political the Bible's not pro-America the Bible's for everyone and so you know trying to get people motivated for this issue okay so one of the things you just said that I think is significant is it's an indication of how biblically illiterate most Christians are Jeremiah when he was taken into captivity. So he's going as a slave into a foreign land. I think it's Jeremiah 30, but one of the things that God tells him, it might be 31, but we can look it up later. The point is, one of the things God tells him is pray for the peace of the land in which you are going. Because when it goes well with the land, it will go well with you. I want God to bless America like crazy because this is where my family lives, where I'm raising my daughter, right? But if I lived in... Guatemala or Guam, guess what I would do? I would pray like crazy that God would bless Guam or Guatemala, right, wherever I live, because that's where I live. So to say that the Bible's not pro-America, well, it's true. The Bible's not pro any nation specifically, other than, right, maybe back up to the covenant God made with Abraham, that I'm going to make you a nation, right, bless us, bless you. So Israel, like, you might can make the argument, but not for America. I get that. However, there's nothing wrong with being patriotic. Biblically, there's nothing wrong with that. And secondly, as Christians, we should be motivated to promote righteousness in our government. So we should be very engaged, involved, and promote that. Because the Bible says, Proverbs 14, 34, that righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is reproached to any people. Uh, Matthew 6, 33, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else is added. We should be promoting righteousness. And one of the challenges, again, is that biblically illiterate, people look at, at cultural issues and think that we can't talk about them as Christians because those are political. Was marriage political or biblical first? Right? And do you know if you went back to the 1980s, nobody would have said marriage was political? Nobody. If you went back to the 1950s, nobody would have said abortion was political. It's only after court decisions or laws that people say now it's political. Well, now you're engaging in politics. If, if the Bible addresses it, it's a biblical issue, not a political issue, right? The problem is people don't know the Bible, and, and even people that sometimes read the Bible, they don't think about the Bible the same way because, right, well, it's just it's God spiritually feeding me. That's awesome. I love to be spiritually fed. But God's also giving guidance for how to live life the majority of the Old Testament, 
Okay, it's history and it's law. And it's the history of how when people followed God's law, they did well. When they didn't follow God's law, they didn't do well. And it was God's law for this is what you should follow. The New Testament comes around, introduces us, Jesus, we're in a new covenant. After the new covenant, you have the book of Acts, but then you get into the Pauline epistles. Every one of Paul's epistles, he was writing to believers and said, this is what you're dealing with. Here's what you should do. The Bible is the most practical book ever. We just don't read it thinking of how should this impact, not, not we, right? Hopefully in this room, you and me, hopefully we do, right? Hopefully us in this room, but culturally, we just don't see the Bible that way. And so we think if culture talks about it, then we're not allowed to because that's political. That's utter nonsense. It's not what the Bible teaches. And if the Bible says something about it, I want to know what the Bible says because I want to think biblical and I want to make sure I'm doing what God will honor and bless. One of the prayers that I think many of us who are patriotic, who love America, whatever side of the aisle you're on, right? We pray, we pray that God helps America, God blesses America. I think the reality that Scripture shows us is when you do what God blesses, God blesses you. When you don't do what God blesses, God doesn't bless you. So as Christians, we should know what are things God blesses, what are things He doesn't bless. Deuteronomy 28 talks about if... God told the Israelites, if you will do what I say, if you follow my commands, you'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the field, blessed in your coming, blessed in your going, blessed in your rising and your laying down to sleep. But it goes through the whole list, 15 verses of blessings. Then in verse 16, he says, if you don't follow my commands, you'll be cursed everywhere you go. Nothing will work for you. The Bible's full of you do what God says and you can enjoy the blessings, the benefits of it. And if you don't, you won't. The problem is today we won't speak to issues that are biblical issues because they're political, but because we won't speak to them, people don't know what's true anymore. So we're embracing a lot of things we shouldn't embrace. So I would say the bigger issue is not just how do we get people here. It's how do we help them learn to think differently about the Bible. And generally that happens through one-on-one interaction relationship. Uh, I mean, even if, if we were hosting an event back home, I could invite all my friends to come, and most of them wouldn't come unless they had a relationship with me and felt like because you asked me, I'll come. We're going to win more people through relationships than anything else. And let me tell everybody, this is one of the things I think culturally we've missed that is a huge Bible thought. The Great Commission, Jesus said, All authority, heaven and earth, have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We have done a terrible job trying to make disciples over the last couple thousand years, specifically because right now in the world, there are 32% of people that identify as Christian. 32% which is the biggest of any religious group. Below that, it's Muslims at 22 or 23%. So Christians are the biggest that self-identify in culture. The problem is, so often as Christians, we think we, we pay pastors and missionaries to share the gospel. If we understood discipleship and said, okay, if 32% of the world says, I'm going to try to make a disciple next year, go make disciples, and I'm going to find one person And I'm going to pour into one person all next year, maybe even two years. Just two years I'm pouring into them. Our 32% would duplicate to 64%. And we say, I'm going to go find another. I'm going to make another disciple. And we taught the people who we disciple to make disciples. All of a sudden, right, two duplications, we have this whole thing, one. But where we are so weak is helping disciple and mentor and pour into people. And so one of the things I think is actually... A, a really good problem where we are is the only way we can reach the next generation, the only way we can reach the cult, culture is through relationship and discipleship. Because people aren't listening to Billy Grahams anymore. Right? I mean, who would be the Billy Graham now? Okay, we can say some big pastors, they're not listening to those anymore. Big crusade rallies, people don't go to crusade rallies. So we have to go to where they are. And so the way we reach the next generation and culture is through individual relationships and through that mentorship and discipleship. Um, and so... 
one of the things that I, I think is the challenge where we are is most people aren't activated, they don't want to get involved, they don't want to get engaged. I want somebody else to do it, right? It's, it's, it, let me be lazy, whatever else. The fact that we are here is awesome, and I would point out that when Gideon tried to get an army, and he had 30,000, and God said, that's too many. We're going to have to cut that back. 10,000, that's too many. Cut it back, 300. Because God wanted to make sure he got the credit for what was going to happen. The American Revolution, only 25% of Americans supported the cause of the revolution. Of those, not everybody fought. At attitude, they supported, but not everybody engaged. Of the people that engaged in the process, either with their pocketbook, their finances, um, fighting on the battlefield, whatever it was, only 9% of Americans fought in favor of independence. We defeated the most powerful military in the world with 9% of the colonists, which is a tiny segment. I say that as encouragement because if we look at culture, how are we going to get 51% of America to be Christian and biblical? What you discover to be true historically is most major movements only had a very small percentage of dedicated, loyal, persevering people. I feel very confident we can get 9% of America that can be dedicated Christians that will fight for biblical principles and word of God, totally. But even that will take the relational investment and discipleship because clearly they're probably not thinking the same way. So they just need some help of what the Bible says and how it applies. It's a really long answer, but I wanted to answer lots of thoughts with it because my brain was going those directions. Do we want to do another one? Or do I talk enough yeah. for all the questions and answers? Are you asking them or Do you have a hand up for a question? Oh, perfect. Wasn't there uh, originally 14 stars on the American flag? It's a really good question. So there were 13 originally because there were 13 colonies. And there's even some debate about who made the first American flag. It's believed that Francis Hopkinson, a sign of the declaration, made the first American flag. But it didn't look cool enough. So they scrapped it and they got a new one that was the one that's known as the Betsy Ross flag even though there's no record that she did it. But it's known as the Betsy Ross flag. That's the one with 13 stars. One more. Uh, one of the issues that I struggle with with the American Revolution is how do you reconcile the, the armed rebellion of the, the colonists against the, uh, the admonition in Scripture? Really good question. Submit to authority. Okay, so the, one of the benefits of studying kind of founding era stuff is they were avid writers so it's easy to find answers in their writings because they for example George Washington there's a hundred volumes of his writings okay hundred thick books they wrote almost all their thoughts down on some level now the difference with Washington is like the letters with him and Martha Martha burned them all because those were her private correspondence and she didn't want people to know about their relationship because she said my husband's been exposed in public his whole life, and we had nothing that was private, so I'm going to keep these private. So she burned all the letters after he died. So beyond his private letters to his wife, most of his other thoughts we have written down. It's true for most founding fathers that they have extensive writings. It's also true with pastors. We have several thousand original sermons from pastors, and even pastors who were involved. The, the, the Battle of Lexington Green, the pastor of Lexington Church, was Jonas Clark. Jonas Clark has several written records and books of written records of what they did and taught. And so it's very well known that Jonas Clark, and, and it's not just Jonas Clark, lots of pastors taught this, but Jonas Clark it is known for sure he taught this, that we could not start an offensive war with the British. It had to be a defensive war. 
because God's given us the right to defend ourselves. We cannot fire the first shot, which is why that the records from the very first morning, the commander of the forces that day was actually a deacon in his church, and the speech he gave was that we will not fire the first shot, but if they mean to have war, let it begin here. And so after they were told to disband, right, there were 70 Americans against more than 700 British, and at the end of it, there were 18 Americans dead and wounded on the ground. No British were hurt. So this idea, the British at the end said, well, we didn't really fire the first shot. And so the British officer said, I didn't, I didn't command the order, so it doesn't count. Essentially is what happened. I don't know, this is kind of a weird analogy. I don't know if you've seen Lord of the Rings before. Um, so Lord of the Rings, twin t- it's, it's so weird, I, I know. Twin Towers, right, there's the old man holding the bow, and it gives away for any, the arrow slips, and he shoots one of the orcs, right? That's kind of my vision of what happened with the revolution that the commander of the British didn't give the order, but as they're there drawn, somebody's getting a little, right, a little tension on the trigger, a little wobbly, and it fires, and when one fires, if you're in a line with a gun, what happens? You just start firing, and so probably, oh, stop, stop, stop. They probably did try to stop it, but even if the order wasn't given, the argument from the colonists was we did not fire first, they fired first. So they viewed it as a defensive war, which was the direct command they gave, and now that it was defensive, they thought we have the right to defend ourselves. For 11 years prior, they wrote letters, did petitions, trying to find peace, couldn't find peace, and the British had already opened fire and killed on some levels back up the Boston Massacre, among other things. Okay, so the British had already opened fire. Beyond that, one of the things that we hear is that, well, the Bible is very clear that you're not supposed to rebel against governing authority. That's, that's mostly true, but not totally true. People point to Romans 13, and in Romans 13 it talks about that government is God's representatives. What the early pastor said is when they cease to be godly, they cease to be God's representative. Now, that might be a bad read because Paul talked about, right, slaves, serve your masters. I mean, right, there's some moments like Paul submitted to some ungodly people too. So on some level, maybe that might be a bad read, although I think that's a very arguable thought. But what they go to beyond that that I think is a much better thought and argument is if you look at Hebrews 11, which is known as kind of the hall of faith, or the hall of fame for Hebrews of the faith, almost every single person it mentions in Hebrews 11 at some point committed an act of civil disobedience. And they were honored. One of the things we have is we're supposed to submit to everybody all the time. Okay, so explain Daniel to me. Right? When Daniel was told, no, you can only pray to, right, the king. No, I'm not. So still, three times a day. Up in front of his window, he kneels down, second story, they see him, and oh, say, then you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? This massive altar, there are too many examples in scripture of where people did not submit to what they viewed to be ungodly orders and commands, and this is where, in the pastor's early writings, they talked about how ungodly so much of what the British were doing, in fact, of the the 27 grievances in the Declaration, um, all, all issues mentioned the Declaration, pastors had talked about prior to 1763. Historians at Duke University documented that. So, like, that, that's secular thought, right? Like, not Christians arguing this. No, secular professors acknowledged early pastors talked about every single issue from the pulpit over a dozen years before we ever did the Declaration of Independence. So, pastors were leading the shaping of the, shaping the thinking, leading the thoughts of this, but their thought was not that if we don't like it, we throw it off, but rather what the king is doing is ungodly, and this is why Franklin's suggestion for a motto for the revolution, I think, is the most telling. Franklin's suggestion was rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. They didn't think they were throwing off government as a whole, right? Because even the Declaration, they point out 
that we believe that there is a God who gave us rights, government should protect those rights, that God's given us rights and wrongs, can send the government. The point I didn't make that's worth noting at this level is they said if a government ever fails to do those things, it is the right of the people to alter, to abolish, or throw off and start a new government. Because they believed in government, but they didn't believe in having to submit to an ungodly government in the same regard. Um, that they believed they had that freedom. And, and I know people debate this. They did not think they were being ungodly. I think there's a really good argument for why there, there's too many examples in Scripture of people not submitting to authority um, and, and not submitting to be godly. Not, right? not like, I, I, no, Mom, I'm not cleaning my room tonight. Like, no, obviously not that level. But when they're asking you to be ungodly, it's okay for you to say no because I submit to God first. And when the authority steps out from under God, I submit to God, not the authority as the primary. And that's how, from the founders' own writings, that's how they largely viewed it. And their writings are reflective of what they learned from their pastors. And their pastors were preaching about this for decades, even George Whitfield, right? First Great Awakening, famous evangelist. He recommended that America should separate from Great Britain and be their own nation because of the oppression and tyranny he was seeing in the First Great Awakening. So this was not a totally new thought, but once we said... Right? Once shots had been fired, we said we wanted to separate, and then war continued. But this was never the thought or heart of the Americans was to go to war, because for 11 years they were petitioning to have these problems solved. And when it wasn't, and then troops came and began seizing all of their guns, supplies, etc., they said, we're not letting you do that. And that's when the shot was fired. We're going to call it a night. Uh, can we thank Tim for coming to us this evening?